0: You are listening to Learn Out Loud's Biography Podcast. With this series, we will explore the lives of notable people throughout history. Whether it be world leaders, political activists, spiritual luminaries, great artists, or everyday people, this podcast will be a showcase for their story. For a complete listing of Learn Out Loud's podcasts, please visit us at www.learnoutloud.com. Thank you for listening. Life of George Washington by Washington Irving, published in 1859, edited by Arthur Mee and J. A. Hamilton. This great historical biography was Washington Irving's principal work. It was founded chiefly upon George Washington's correspondence, which is preserved in manuscript in the archives of the United States government. Irving worked at it intermittently for many years, and it was published in successive sections during the last years of his life. 1855 to 1859, while he was living in retirement with his nieces at Sunnyside on the Hudson River. The DeWesington family of the county of Durham, in feudal times, produced many men of mark in the field and in the cloister, and at a later period the Washingtons were intrepid supporters of the unfortunate House of Stuart. Compromised by this allegiance, two brothers, John and Andrew, uncles of Sir Henry Washington, the gallant defender of Worcester, emigrated to Virginia in 1657 and purchased lands in Westmoreland by the River Potomac. John, who became military leader of the Virginians against the Indians, was great-grandfather of the illustrious George Washington. George, born in February 22, 1732, in a homestead on Bridges Creek, was the eldest son of Mary Ball, second wife of Augustine, Washington. Two half-brothers, Lawrence and Augustine, survived from the first marriage, and Mary had three other sons and two daughters. George received his first education in an old field schoolhouse, taught by the parish sexton. But the chief influences of his boyhood were the morality of his home and the military ardor of the colonists against the Spanish and the French. Lawrence, his eldest brother, had a captaincy in the colonial regiment, which fought for England in the West Indies in 1740 and the boy's whole mind was turned to war. His father died when he was 11 years old, and George was sent to live with his married brother Augustine. Here he attended school, was eager in the acquirement of knowledge, and became expert in all athletic exercises. He very nearly entered on a naval career, but at his mother's earnest entreaty, renounced the project and, returning to school, studied land surveying. Lawrence's brother, having married into the Fairfax family, George came under the notice of Lord Fairfax, owner of immense tracts of country, who was so pleased with the lad's character and accomplishments that he entrusted him with the task of surveying his possessions. At the age of sixteen, George Washington set out into the wilderness, and acquitted himself so well that he was appointed public surveyor. He thus gained an intimate knowledge and of the ways of the Indians." The English and French governments were at this time making conflicting claims to the Ohio Valley, and their agents were treating with the various Indian tribes. At length, the French prepared to enforce their claim by arms, and Washington received in 1751 a commission as adjutant general over a military district of Virginia. In October 1753, he was sent by Governor Dinwiddie on a mission to the French commander, from which he returned in the following January. And his conduct on this occasion, when he had to traverse great distances of an unknown forest at midwinter, and to cope with the craft of white men and savages alike, marked him out as a youth fitted for the most important civil and military trusts. Conflicts with the French Washington was for the first time under fire in April 1754, when he had been sent as second-in-command of the colonial forces to take charge of a fort on the Ohio. He fell in with a French party of spies, whom his small force with Indian assistance put to flight. His fort, named Fort Necessity, was defended by 300 men, but was attacked in July by a greatly superior force of French and Indians, and Washington had to capitulate, marching out with the honors of war. When it was determined, the same autumn, by the governor and the British secretary of state, that the colonial troops should be reduced to independent companies, so that there should no longer be colonial officers above the rank of captain, Washington, in accordance with the dawning republicism of America, resigned his commission, and settling at Mount Vernon, prepared to devote himself to agriculture. But in 1755, General Braddock was sent out to undertake energetic operations against the French, and Washington accepted the general's offer of a position on his staff. It was now that the eminent Benjamin Franklin did such great service to the British arms by organizing transport and listened with astonishment to Braddock's anticipations of easy victory. On July 9th, Braddock's force was utterly routed by the French and Indians, and the general himself was slain. This reverse did away with all belief throughout the colonies in the power of British arms and prepared the way for the independence that was to follow. On August 14th, George Washington was appointed to the Supreme Command of the Virginian Forces with his headquarters at Winchester and was occupied in the defense of a wide frontier with an insufficient force until the expedition against Fort Duquesne in 1758 when he planted the British flag on its smoking ruins and put an end to the French domination of the Ohio. His marriage to Mrs. Martha Custis, a young and wealthy widow, was celebrated on January 6, 1759. He took a seat in the House of Burgesses at Williamsburg, and established himself at Mount Vernon to develop his estates. A large Virginia estate in those days was a little empire. THE DAWN OF INDEPENDENCE The definitive treaty of peace between France and England was signed at Fontainebleau in 1763, but the tranquility of the colonies was again broken by an Indian insurrection known as Pontiac's War. Washington had no part in its suppression, but he was soon to be called to gain to the defense of his country. He was in his place in the House of Burgesses on May 29, 1765, when the claims of Britain to tax the colony were first repudiated and it was declared that the General Assembly of Virginia had the exclusive right to tax the inhabitants, and that whoever maintained the contrary should be deemed an enemy to the colony. These resolutions were the signal for general applause throughout the continent. The repeal in 1766 of the Objectionable Stamp Act only postponed the crisis, which became acute when the Port of Boston was closed by Parliament. Because of the resistance of that city to the importation of East Indian tea, a general congress of deputies from the several colonies was convened for September 5, 1773 at Philadelphia, in which Washington took part, and a federal union of the colonies was then established. The English commander, General Gage, struck the first blow against popular liberties in the engagement at Lexington, April 18, 1775. And on June 15th, Washington was unanimously elected Commander-in-Chief of the American Forces. Two days later was fought outside Boston the heroic Battle of Bunkers Hill, and on the 21st, Washington set out from Philadelphia to the seat of war, where he had laid a strict siege about Boston, with a view to forcing the British to come out. An English ship having bombarded the American port at Falmouth, an act was passed by the General Court of Massachusetts, "'encouraging the fitting out of armed vessels to defend the coast of America, "'and granting letters of mark and reprisal. "'In October, a conference of delegates was held, "'with regard to a new organization of the Army, "'and a new force of 22,000 was formed, "'every soldier being enlisted for one year only. "'Montreal had been captured by an American expedition, "'and Washington was now looking forward to equal success "'in an exhibition against Quebec.' He was further encouraged by the capture by one of his cruisers of a brigantine laden with munitions of war, including a huge brass mortar. His wife joined the camp before Boston, and the eventful year was closed with festivities. But the gallant attempt on Quebec, in which Montgomery fell, was frustrated, and the siege of Boston dragged on uneventfully, until the Americans, in March, seized Dorchester Heights and made the town no longer tenable. On the 17th, there were in Boston Harbor 78 ships and transports casting loose for sea, and 12,000 soldiers, sailors, and refugees hurrying to embark. The flag of 13 stripes the standard of the Union floated above the Boston forts after 10 tedious months of siege. The eminent services of Washington throughout this arduous period, his admirable management by which, in the course of a few months, An undisciplined band of husbandmen became soldiers and were able to expel a brave army of veterans commanded by the most experienced generals, won the enthusiastic applause of the nation. A unanimous vote of thanks was passed to him in Congress. Declaration of Independence Dispatches from Canada continued to be disastrous, and the evacuation of that country was determined on in June 1776. The great aim of the British was now to get possession of New York and the Hudson and to make them the bases of military operations. While danger was gathering around New York and its inhabitants were in mute suspense and fearful anticipations, the General Congress at Philadelphia was discussing with closed doors the greatest question ever debated in America. A resolution was passed unanimously on July the 2nd that these united colonies are, of right ought to be, free and independent states. The 4th of July is the day of national rejoicing, for on that day the Declaration of Independence, that solemn and sublime document, was adopted. Tradition gives a dramatic effect to its announcement. It was known to be under discussion, but the closed doors of Congress excluded the populace. They awaited in throngs an appointed signal. In the steeple of the State House was a bell, bearing the portentous text from Scripture Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. A joyous peal from that bell gave notice that the bill had been passed. It was the knell of British domination. Washington held the declaration with joy. It was but a formal recognition of a state of things which had long existed but it put an end to all those temporizing hopes of reconciliation which had clogged the military action of the country. On July the ninth, he caused it to be read at the head of each brigade of the army. The general hopes, said he, that this important event will serve as a fresh incentive to every officer and soldier to act with fidelity and courage, as knowing that now the peace and safety of his country depend, under God, solely on the success of our arms." and that he is now in the service of a state possessed of sufficient power to reward his merit and advance him to the highest honors of a free country. And again, the general hopes and trusts that every officer and man will endeavor so to live and act as becomes a Christian soldier, defending the dearest rights and liberties of his country. THE WINNING OF INDEPENDENCE but the exultation of the Patriots of New York was soon overclouded. British warships under Admiral Lord Howe were in the harbor on July 12, and affairs now approached the crisis. Lord Howe came as a mediator, not as a destroyer, and had prepared a declaration inviting communities as well as individuals to merit and receive pardon by a prompt return to their duty. It was a matter of sore regret to him that his call to loyalty had been forestalled by the Declaration of Independence. The British force in the neighborhood of New York, under General Howe, brother of the admiral, was about 30,000 men. The Americans were only about 20,000, for the most part, raw and undisciplined, and the sectional jealousies prevalent among them were more and more a subject of uneasiness to Washington. On August 27th, The American force was defeated with great loss in the Battle of Long Island and was withdrawn from the island by a masterly night retreat. This led to the loss of New York and the Hudson River to the British. Reverse followed reverse. Washington was driven by the British army from one point after another. Many of the chief American cities were taken, and on September 26, 1777, General Sir William Howe, marched into Philadelphia and thus occupied the capital of the Confederacy. But Washington still maintained his characteristic equanimity. I hope, he said, that a little time will put our affairs in a more flourishing condition. This anticipation was soon to be fulfilled. General Burgoyne had been advancing from the north with a large force of British and Hessian troops, but was compelled by General Gates, with a superior American force, to capitulate on October 17, 1777. By this capitulation, the Americans gained a fine train of artillery, 7,000 stand-of-arms, and a great quantity of clothing, tents, and military stores of all kinds, and the surrender of Burgoyne struck dismay into the British Army on the Hudson River. But the struggle for independence was still to continue for four years of incessant military operations, and it was not until the surrender of Yorktown, on October 19, 1781, by Lord Cornwallis, that Britain gave up hope of reducing her rebel colonies. When the redoubts of Yorktown were taken, Washington exclaimed, The work is done, and well done. A general treaty of peace was signed in Paris on January 20th, 1783, and in March of that year Sir Guy Carleton informed Washington that he was ordered to proclaim a cessation of hostilities by sea and land. On April 19th, the anniversary of the Battle of Lexington, thus completing the eighth year of the war, Washington issued a general order to the army in these terms the generous task for which we first flew to arms being accomplished, the liberties of our country being fully acknowledged and firmly secured, and the characters of those who have persevered through every extremity of hardship, suffering, and danger, being immortalized by the illustrious appellation of the Patriot Army, nothing now remains but for the actors of this mighty scene to preserve a perfect, unvarying consistency of character through the very last act to close the drama with applause, and to retire from the military theater with the same approbation of angels and men which has crowned all their former virtuous actions. Writing on June 8th to the governors of the several states, he said, The great object for which I had the honor to hold an appointment in the service of my country being accomplished, I am now preparing to return to that domestic retirement which, it is well known, I left with the greatest reluctance a retirement for which I have never ceased to sigh through a long and painful absence, and in which, remote from the noise and trouble of the world, I meditate to pass the remainder of life in a state of undisturbed repose. The Years of Peace Washington returned to Mount Vernon on Christmas Eve, 1783, and busied himself with the care of his estates. He had never ceased to be the agriculturist, Through all his campaign he had kept himself informed of the course of rural affairs at Mount Vernon. By means of maps on which every field was laid down and numbered, he was enabled to give directions for their several cultivation, and to receive accounts of their several crops. No hurry of affairs prevented a correspondence with his agent, and he exacted weekly reports. He now read much on agriculture and gardening and corresponded with the celebrated Arthur Young, from whom he obtained seeds of all kinds, improved plows, plans for laying out farmyards, and advice on various parts of rural economy. His active day at Mount Vernon began some time before dawn. Much of his correspondence was dispatched before breakfast, which took place at half-past seven. After breakfast, he mounted his horse and rode off to various parts of his estate dined at half-past two. If there was no company, he would write until dark, and in the evening he read or amused himself with a game of whist. The adoption of the federal Constitution opened another epoch in the life of Washington. Before the official forms of an election could be carried into operation, a unanimous sentiment throughout the Union pronounced him the nation's choice to fill the presidential chair. The election took place and Washington, was chosen president for a term of four years, from March 4, 1788. An entry in his diary on March 16 says, I bade adieu to Mount Vernon and to domestic felicity, and with a mind oppressed with more anxious and painful sensations than I have words to express, set out for New York with the best disposition to render service to my country, in obedience to its call. But with less hope of answering its expectations. The weight and influence of his name and character were deemed all essential to complete his work, to set the new government in motion, and conduct it through its first perils and trials. He undertook the task, firm in the resolve in all things to act as his conscience told him was right as it respected his God, his country, and himself. For he knew no divided fidelity, no separate obligation. His most sacred duty to himself was his highest duty to his country and his God. His death took place on December 14, 1799. The character of Washington may want some of the poetical elements which dazzle and delight the multitude, but it possessed fewer inequalities and a rarer union of virtues than perhaps ever fell to the lot of one man. Prudence, firmness, sagacity, moderation, and overruling judgment— an immovable justice, courage that never faltered, patience that never wearied, truth that disdained all artifice, magnanimity without alloy.